Nick, again, it's great to have you with us. Come bring God's word to your pe- to His people. Good morning again, grace and peace. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day and uh, to open up God's word with you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in James three thirteen through 18. That might be on the screen behind me. I don't know how you guys did it, but uh, we're talking about uh, godly wisdom. While you're turning there uh, in a pew Bible, maybe James three thirteen through 18. Uh, I want to ask, why do a one-off sermon on the topic of wisdom? Right? Why would we tackle that this morning? Well, James sort of writes a one-off letter about it. He already talks about it in James chapter 1 and now picking it back up in chapter 3. So it's never a bad idea to copy the idea of a biblical author. Uh, But uh, James, you know, to put a finer point on it, James begins uh, this in in verse 5 of chapter 1. I mentioned this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. He says that right up front in the beginning of his letters, talking about, You need to have wisdom. But why does James put such a premium on being wise? Right? Why should we? Well, it's not just that we need to know uh, some sort of philosophy or some sort of code to live by, uh, nor is it to fill our heads with facts or insight. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is more than just knowing little factoids, even little factoids about God. Right? We, read, we read Psalm 1 earlier in this service, and there are people who spend time reflecting on God's law, his character, his desires, are pictured not as like a static island, not a fortress unto themselves, right? They're not supposed to be brains on sticks. They just know a lot about God. Instead, we're told that the psalmist says that a wise person is like a tree, a tree whose roots sink deep into God's character and that that relationship produces fruit, right? Fruit to the benefit of all those who come in contact with them. It's a dynamic picture of life to be lived, growing up to do. That is wisdom. As one of my seminary professors used to say, wisdom is not knowing facts. It's the skill. It's a skill that you develop. A skill in the art of godly living. In other words, wisdom books like James are not concerned so much with what you know. And that's assumed that you know God in his goodness and mercy. That's assumed. Instead, these books ask, what are you going to do with what you know? How are you going to grow? How are you going to live? What are we supposed to do with what we know about God? Let's let's find out by reading James 3, 13 through 18. What does he have to say about this? He asks the following, who is wise and understanding among you? Who's wise and understanding among you? But by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. 
Oh God, we simply pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, doesn't get, uh, it doesn't take a long time to get through this passage and, and encounter James asking, what are you going to do with what you know? Right? What are you going to do? What, what's the skill you're developing? It's sort of in the first question, isn't it? Right? Are you wise? Who is wise among you? Are you understanding? Then prove it, he says. By his good conduct, let him show it. Do something about it with good works demonstrating your wisdom. This might feel like a lot to ask of us, maybe even demanding of us, might even seem a little legalistic this morning. And I'd, I'd say, you know, we're, we're dropping in at the end of the letter. Sometimes you can do this with Paul. You're like, we're at the end of the letter. He's getting more practical now. Uh, you know, you can kind of, there's other things that came before it. But I got to tell you, this is basically James's deal the whole way through, right? In the previous chapter, James makes the argument that faith without works is dead. This caused Martin Luther, uh, you know, uh, an early Protestant reformer, uh, to call this letter an epistle of straw. But is it? Is James coming at us? Is he being legalistic this morning? I've become friends with the guy who has the job at Western Kentucky University of being the campus minister there. And uh, so he's inherited the job from the guy who taught me. He told this story once about how he went to purchase a parking pass from WKU's, like, uh, transportation services. I, I, I think it's similar to like most college campuses. You guys are probably familiar with this kind of system that it has like a grading tier of like where you can park, right? If you get like the top pass, you can park it at all the other places below it. If you get like the bottom pass, you typically have to park like 10 miles away and hike uphill both ways to campus. It's that kind of thing, right? Well, if you got the bottom tier pass at WKU, it basically gives you a, a lot that is so far away from everything else on campus that it is literally called Egypt a lot, right? It's like, it's just, it's Egypt. It's just might as well be a million miles away. Uh, and you have to take a shuttle to get to campus from the lot that's there. And of course, that's what you get when you first show up on campus and you're, you know, a campus minister or whatever, you're kind of an affiliate of the university. They're like, you get the Egypt pass. So he parks there every day. And he heard wind though. He like started seeing everywhere on campus all these parking spots had like, you know, the first thing listed was the super premium, SP, super premium parking pass. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of pass that like you can, you can park like on top of a fire hydrant. That is totally fine. You know, it's all good. Like you can park wherever you want with the super premium parking pass. And he uh, decides, you know, when he gets up the second year, after he'd been there for a year, he goes to the lady who's giving out the passes at parking and transportation. He says, hey, how do you get the super premium pass? Like, what do you have to do? And she goes, actually, it's just done by a wait list. You know, he goes, oh, okay. And she goes, yeah, I can sign you up for one. I, I will tell you that it takes about 10 years to get off of the wait list. And he goes, well, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll still be here. Sign me up and what's the worst that can happen, Right. And every year he goes back to parking services and he gets his you know, puny little Egypt pass and waits patiently, longingly for a super premium pass. Well, about five years pass, he doesn't hear anything. And he goes up, he's getting his Egypt pass uh, at the beginning of the school year. And he says, hey, I was just wondering, like, where am I on the, on the wait list for the super premium pass? And she starts looking it up and she kind of, you know, appears up from her computer and he's like, 
am, am, I, am I still pretty far? And she goes, well, sir, we, we emailed you back in March, actually. Uh, and that had a 30-day window on it. And so actually, I can put you back at the bottom of the wait list if you'd like. And he, you know, obviously launches into groveling with her. Please, please, you have to, like, you have to have mercy on me. And he's just destroyed, like, at this window. And a guy is walking by, and, you know, he's in a seat. He comes up, and he goes, is there, a, is there a problem here? And the guy goes, yeah. He starts to try and, like, tell him. He goes, why don't you come with me? And he, like, takes him around the back, and they go to this back office. And he immediately starts to, like, launch into his sob story with this guy. I, I, I would have checked my email. I think it went to my spiritual. I, you know, I, I, I'm a really good person. This, I, I love college kids. I'm, let me tell you some stories about how God's been at work and are you. He's like trying his best to get this guy to give him the pass. And he just holds up. He says he just holds up his hand, reaches into his desk, pulls out a super premium parking pass. Just sitting there. And he goes, he goes, I'm the director of parking and transportation. Like, I, the, your cries, your pleas have been heard, you know? Like, here is the pass, right? Just punches a couple buttons, hands in the pass, and says, go enjoy. Now, what if after all that, what if after all that, that work, all the, you know, he gets this pass five years into waiting, what if my friend had just kept on parking in Egypt? Right? Or worse, what if, he, what if he stopped showing up at all or refused to give rides to anyone running late to class or needing to carry groceries to their dorm? What if uh, he had just acted like he never got it? It would make no sense. You'd be like, you, you've been given this pet. Why wouldn't you use it? Well, uh, can I submit to you this morning that we've been given something a lot better than a super premium parking pass? Friends, we have the gospel. We have the good news in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that secures our, our salvation. If we place our faith in him, God offers us that good news this morning, every morning, that, that is not just a fact to know, but it's a path to walk down, right? It's a, it is a thing, right? Like God has given you this thing. That's a fact. He has died on the cross to reconcile us to himself. And as long as you place your faith in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to you and you are saved. God loves you, delights in you, and wants a relationship with you, right? That, that is such good news. But if we don't utilize that, what difference does it make, right? This is a path to walk in. This is why James paints two very stark pictures of the way we can live our lives. He gives us two paths. One that, that is wisdom from below, the one of someone who parks in Egypt, and one of wisdom from above, the one of someone who has received their parking pass and lives the enjoyable life of someone who does that, who has that. This isn't an epistle of straw. It's God inviting us deeper into his grace by way of contrast, right? Not to park in Egypt, but instead to live as those who have received the greatest gift we could ever imagine. Now, let's spend the rest of our time this morning exploring those two paths, right? What does it look like to utilize the path we've been given? What does it look like to live out, to joyously receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Well, let's start the way uh, James does. Let's start with the path of those who heed earthly wisdom. Look at me at verses 14 through 16. 
Look at verses 14 through 16. Here, James clearly cautions his readers, right? Earlier in chapter 3, James has been addressing what seems to be a group in the church who were trying to be leaders and teachers, but were constantly speaking in ways that cut other people down. This might be the same group from chapter 2 who were also flattering wealthy and influential members of the church, dishonoring, ignoring the poor. Selfishly ambitious is what James calls them. And it's an appropriate word to describe such people. It's the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. It's actually just one word in the Greek. But it gets at the heart of these people. They want power. They want recognition. They want status. They want to be accepted in the cool group. They are selfish. And they are ambitious to get them, themselves ahead. Right? Approval. They want approval from the people that they deem important. Who is important? Make, I want them to think I'm important. And how they, get them, how they get those things is revealing, right? How does he say that they accomplish this? In boasting and in lies, right? They boast and are false to the truth. They build themselves up. They are their own hype man, right? They, and, and they lie, right? Likely in two different ways given the context, right? They lie by flattering those above them. And they probably lie by defaming those below them. In verse 15, James makes the contrast clear. As opposed to true wisdom from God, from above, those who walk this path have different priorities. He gives three descriptions of what their wisdom is like. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Think about those for a second. Earthly means that uh, they care about what they perceive now. Everything is, is about the physical world around them, whatever is in front of them. If uh, everyone tells them that they need a new car, then they need a new car. If everyone says the cool way to live is, you know, I don't know, doing whatever, walking backwards, then walking backwards is really the cool way to live. Everything is about what other people think. It's defined best where Paul actually says this, uh, uses the same word, earthly, in Philippians 3.19, he says, people who are earthly are enemies of the cross of Christ and have their minds set on earthly things, right? As opposed to the realities that God says that he puts up in Jesus, right? Uh, they set their mind opposite that, whatever other people say, not what God says. Their, their wisdom is earthly. It's also unspiritual. Let's think about that for a second. This is actually the adjectival form of the word soul. So you could be like, you could say it's like, uh, it's solely, S-O-U-L-L-Y, right? It focuses on the inner life of a person, not the earthly thing out there, but what's going on inside here, right? Every use in the New Testament is in contrast with the idea of spiritual. Every other use in the New Testament, it's, uh, you're either unspiritual or spiritual, it ushers not from God and the Holy Spirit, but from the core of man, where human reason and human feelings reign supreme, right? What do I think is right? right? When the, the earthly person says, what does everyone else think is right? The spiritual, unspiritual person says, what, what do I think is right? Last thing that he says their wisdom is, is that it's demonic. Now, that can be understood as demonic in nature, right? That it's so bad, it's so evil that it's, that it's, that it's demon-like. But it's probably more likely a type of wisdom or behavior that is demonic in origin, right? Uh, 
particularly because how he set them off with earthly and unspiritual. I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, as demons are servants of the devil, this wisdom comes from Satan himself. In other words, right, if we put these together, if you think about it like this, uh, the way of the unwise caters to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right, the three like ancient enemies of all God's people across time and space, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? These, are the, these are the things that if you are unwise, you will pay heed to. They will tell you what is good in this world. And it's appropriate to ask ourselves this morning, is this me? Do I, do I follow wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? Right? Do you embellish your accomplishments to impress other people? Do you flatter bosses and social superiors? Do you speak ill of others to make yourself look better? Are you consumed by ambition, looking for power and approval and status wherever you can find it? We can do these things in subtle ways too, right? In paying off a home. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you think, I made it because I have enough money. I made it because I'm, I, I'm financially secure, right? That's looking for power here based on how the earth operates, Right? Uh, it can be, you know, even posting edgy takes on social media, punching down at other people how stupid they look. I'm so smart about, my, about what I think. Right? Essentially, is your life shaped more by your own desires or the expectations of others than by the desires and expectations of God? And is this you this morning? This is, you know, something in, in my role, I get the, the privilege of especially pressing to the leaders of this church, right? Both those in formal positions of authority or informal positions of power and influence. This is men and women alike. In the context of James chapter 3, this is actually, this whole chapter is especially written for folks who wield power and influence in the church, right? Are these your motivations? It's no surprise that... Uh, You know, James says in verse 16, he describes the system with leaders like this as one of disorder and vile practice. That word disorder is used not just to mean chaos, but rather it has been used twice in this letter already to describe double-mindedness, right? Disorder is an unsettled life. Its target ever changes. What it wants depends on what other people want. It depends on what you want in your heart, which can shift day to day. When the end goal is the approval of other people, the means to achieve that end will be ever shifting. So it's no surprise that sin runs rampant in a system like this. And when leaders are not concerned with holiness and dying to themselves, a flock will follow suit because the system of such leaders will create and reward those who flatter the right kind of people. You know, uh, I, I will say I'm thankful that from where I sit, right, God has given this church a great community, right? A, a community of men and women who are rooted in God's word. As Lee has said, there's been a healthy partnership with RUF with all these ministries. Like this is a, a light in the city uh, of, you know, it's not for Bellevue, right? I want to keep calling it Florence, but we're a little north of that. Uh, like in this, in this city, right, where, where you've been situated, uh, it's worth noting that this is important, right? It, it, that, that how your leaders go, how you are as a, as a community with regard to these things, like that will be picked up on 
and it will create a system. Like if, you're, if the people holding power and influence are following these kinds of wisdoms, then you're, you're toast as a church. You, you will follow after other schemes. Here's the good news, uh, or here's an admonishment at this point. Uh, pray for your leaders, right? Like what this means is it's not that easy. If, if, if Paul has to, or sorry, if James has to write a whole letter about this, addressing this issue in this church, how much more so is it just obvious that like all churches need godly leaders and it's not that easy to be one? Right? We should be praying for those in leadership. Also encourage them, right? When's the last time you told uh, a ruling elder or whoever teaches Sunday school here or you know, even just like picks up trash around, even just, see I even did it myself, uh, like who picks up trash around here, like tell them, thank you for doing that. Right? Thank you for, for working this hard. Thank you for doing things when people don't notice. Like it, it shows me who God is. Right? That's the kind of church you want to be. Uh, and, and James says, if, if you are not, everyone will follow suit. Now, James does not only give us warnings about that. He shows us the more excellent way too. Let's look at that. Look at me at verses 13 and 17 through 18. Look at me at verses 13 and 17 through 18. For the truly wise, James offers another round. The wise in verse 13 are described as understanding. Uh, the only time that word is used in the New Testament. In other first century le- uh, literature, it actually refers to like professional knowledge. Like if you're an engineer, right, you would be, you would be someone who has understanding of the mechanics of the world, right? One who has understanding is an expert in a given field. And James is asking for experts on God, God in his ways. The truly wise know God in his mercy and in his holiness, and they walk before him accordingly. It's not surprising then that James expects good works to flow from such believers. And this leading question of verse 13, followed by demand for evidence, right, would be reproof to those with sharp tongues, and wisdom from below, right? But it should be an encouragement to us as the church, right? We ought to have wisdom, James says, that bears the mark of meekness. Meekness, we read about it earlier in Matthew 11, meekness or self-subduing gentleness was not a virtue in the ancient world any more than it is today. Meekness does not seek your best life now, right? Meekness does not yield power, to other people to become weak. But it is how Jesus describes himself. He says that he is meek and lowly. Some, some of our translations translate that word gentle, but it's the same word. He is meek and lowly in heart as he invites sinners to rest by following him. We worship a savior who laid down his life for us so that we might live. Our lives, James is saying, have to be shaped by that reality. And if they are, James continues in verse 17, if you want to look there, they will first and foremost be characterized by purity. You notice as he lists these things out, he even says, first it's purity, and then all the other things follow after. When James described those who heed the wisdom from below, we saw that they were double-minded with mixed motives, out to protect their own position, jealous over their own power, but the one who aspires to live before the face of God, he says, is first pure. They are a single-minded person, concerned with glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That is their primary motive. 
Right? They are fixed, unlike these other people who are disordered. God, James presents us with a fixed life. You know what you are getting with someone who seeks wisdom from above. They are consistent. And notice that not all of these virtues are equal, right? James lists the purity first and then all other virtues. This is because purity of heart brings forth all the other virtues, right? It is only in being completely captured by the work of the Holy Spirit that one can bear fruit, right? But it's, it's worth noting that God is first focused on our heart, right? We, I, I can't unpack all the other uh, adjectives in this, you know, all the other fruit that you can bear when you have the right life. But I, I want to notice, I want to make a point that even when God is talking about behavior modification, even when he is talking about what you need to do in following him, what he expects of you, he leads first with your heart, right? Not with, not with all the things he wants you to do to earn salvation or anything like that. He says, what I most want you to do is, is be pure in heart. I want you to love me. I love you and I want you to be pure in heart about me. Even while he is calling us to right behavior, God is focused first on on letting us know that we are loved by him and he wants us to love him back. We cannot be peaceful, gentle, merciful, loving, correctable people if we are not first caught up mind, body, and spirit with the beauty of God to the point that that beauty overflows into our lives. Right When my wife and I were first dating, uh, she went to the University of Virginia and we, we, I would go visit her and we went on a hike together outside Charlottesville and as people would pass us on the trail, uh, I would say, howdy. Like, howdy, how you doing? Howdy, howdy. You know, it's just kind of my like, little greeting. And at one point, Maddie kind of chuckled and pointed out, like, she never heard me say, like, howdy before. It's like, this is, like you don't like greet, you don't say, like, howdy to me. And I told her that it's, it's been my life stream to be the kind of guy that says howdy on trails. She's like, that's a weird dream. Like, I guess that is a weird dream. And she's like, where did that come from? Like, why do you, why do, you do that? I, I told her, well, you know, I started thinking about it. I said, well, I think it's that my dad used to say it. Right? He, whenever he'd enter a room, he, he, would, he would say howdy all the time. He, uh, he'd never seemed to meet a stranger. He had inside jokes with people that he'd known for five minutes. Right? He's just kind of that kind of guy. My, my desire to say howdy, turns out, was simply an external manifestation of a captured heart. Right? I didn't have to think about saying howdy. I, I said it because I, I wanted to be like my dad. Right? I wanted to be my dad, and I wanted to share in that life, so I followed him in it. The most natural thing in the world. Here's the question. Do we do the same with Jesus? Right? Do you find him beautiful? Do you see him giving himself up for you? And does that compel you towards selflessness with others? This is the way of the wise, brothers and sisters, getting into the word, praying, putting the beautiful vision of God in front of our eyes so that we can be pure in heart, so that we say our howdies. Right? Not, uh, for the record, not every uh, application of every passage of the Bible is like, read your Bible more. But this particular one, right? If you're going to be pure in heart, you've got to get God's purity in front of you and in you. And I also think it's worth thinking about this again in a corporate sense as well, not just individually. Remember that James writes this letter to a church body that is suffering from poor leadership. Again, right? It's worth asking ourselves if our individual life 
represents this commitment to wisdom, but also is our church representing this kind of commitment to wisdom? Do we favor the right people, which is the people that no one else favors? Do we make effort to love the people who are outcast and who are marginalized? Is that where our heart resides? Right? Are, we, are we here to impress or are we here to love and serve? When, when people come here, do they encounter a community that is peaceful, gentle, merciful, loving, teachable? Right? To put, you know, a fine point again, right? Like, are your leaders doing that? Right? I get to come here and I just get to like say this kind of stuff and then leave. It's great. Um, right? This is, for the record, this is also not licensed to come and like beat up your elders after. What I, am, what I am saying is actually, again, if you believe that this church, like if you believe people love God in this church, I think that you should, having spent some time with Lee. Like I, I would say, again, like this is another call to pray for your leaders. It's easy for them to fall into spiritual traps of being unsettled and unstable and impure. And what I would say is that's all the more reason to encourage them in this purity, into ordered thinking, into willing one thing, and that is loving God and loving their neighbor. Right? If it, it can't be easy because Paul says, or James says, it's so easy to fall off the other way, and then also encourages them to stay on the right track in both areas. He's saying it is vital that church leadership understands how to give away their power, how to love other people, how to serve people, and it's not easy. Right? If anything, uh, maybe this is just simply a word of encouragement to persevere this morning. That if you are weary of giving up power, if you are weary of loving and serving and putting yourself second, God is not uh, leaving you there. That he is, he is, you are on the right path. He is giving you grace today for that work. Right? Encourage, encourage each other in that work. It's obviously not easier. James wouldn't have to say it. Whereas, you know, whereas the wisdom from below produces, you know, double-mindedness and sin, if we are a church that pursues wisdom from above, we will, as God promises in verse 18, we will produce a harvest of righteousness, sin, and peace. I know that's your longing. To, to see a harvest of righteousness, sin, and peace in the city. And I, I'm praying that with you. Uh, let's close by, by doing that. Uh, Lord, you say that uh, there is a harvest of righteousness, sown in peace for those who seek it, who are single-minded and who do love your, your word and your people. Lord, I, I pray that grace and peace, that this church would be that in this world, that uh, far and wide people would come seeking a community that... Uh, that does not favor the, the proud and the exciting and the fun and the, the tyranny of the awesome, but instead rejects that for humility and love and self-sacrifice, uh, that this would be a people of uh, gentle and lowly people in heart. I pray that that would sweep uh, across the city, across the state, and across our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.